Uh, back in 2009, my wife and I moved into our very first house as a married couple. And if you've ever moved into a brand new house, you understand that there are um, sounds that you are not familiar with, certain shadows that lurk that you uh, don't recognize. And this was certainly the case for us on the first night that we had spent there. At the time, I had a job uh, that required me to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, now, I know that some of this, uh, is, this is a pretty normal routine for a lot of you, but you have to understand that I am not a morning person. Um, five o'clock is very faded for me. Five o'clock in the morning is fuzzy. It's, it's mysterious. And so in the first morning, at five o'clock in the morning in our new uh, house, I, I went into the bathroom to uh, do the morning routine. And as I came out into the darkness of our room, I saw that my wife had hidden her entire body underneath the covers as not to be awoken at this ungodly hour. And so as I went to exit the room, I opened up the door to the hallway, and to my surprise, there was some animal sloth-like creature standing in the doorway to my hallway. At this moment... The creature looked up at me and reached up their hand, and I just about lost it. I leaped about five feet into the air across the room towards the bed, and I screamed out in a very, very girly way, Sarah! I was going to protect her, I promise. (laughs) And that second, she shouted out to me, what's wrong, what's wrong? But I was confused, something was off, because her voice wasn't coming from the bed, it was coming from the hallway. This sloth-like creature was my wife. And now we joke that the scariest moment of my life was my wife in the morning. Disclaimer, she's very beautiful in the morning, uh, just as beautiful as you would see her in a normal day. Uh, It was a mixture of the new house and five o'clock in the morning that I wasn't sure what was going on. And I had mistaken my wife for this creature that scared me. (laughs) Maybe you've had a similar experience where you have trembled with fear. My wife told me that I looked super pale. I had lost all color in my face because I was so scared. Uh, She had told me that it looked like I had seen someone die. Uh, and I was trembling, and it, even though I knew the situation was safe, and I knew that there was nothing to be worried about, it took me my entire commute to still my trembling hands. That's how scared I was. Perhaps, once again, you've had a similar situation where you've trembled with fear. Maybe you've been in a place where something seems a little off, or your spine tingles. Maybe you think that things aren't what they seem. Something else is really going on here. Well, I actually want to make the claim that in this world, even in an everyday setting, even as we talk with each other back and forth right now, things aren't what they seem. Daniel 10 kind of peels back the curtain a little bit. It gives us a behind-the-scenes look at what is really going on. It tells us, shows us what is reality. Now, before I go into explaining what's happened in this story, I want to just note real quick that a passage like this could cause us to ask a lot more questions than receive answers. It would be easy to go down a road where we are constantly asking more questions. And so with that in mind, uh, we must focus 
our time this morning on the main things because to divert from that would be unnecessary and unhelpful. And so let me urge you to focus your mind not on all the extra questions, but what this passage really teaches, what it's showing. Nothing more, nothing less. And so let's look at our text in chapter 10. Chapter 10 serves as a prologue to chapter 11 and 12, Daniel's final vision. And we'll actually get to 11 and 12 next week, but chapter 10 is kind of an introduction to Daniel's final vision. He was still in a foreign land exiled by the Babylonians, but at this point, um, the Persian Empire took over the Babylonians in 539, which actually set up Persia as the primary world power. And so if we look at verse 1, we see that it was the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. We know that this story took place at about 536 B.C., 536, 535 B.C. This puts Daniel uh, at about 85 years old, 85 years old. And at 85 years old, Daniel has some kind of revelation or a message. He, He has this revelation or a message, and this message seemed to trouble Daniel. In verse 2, we see that he actually falls distraught. And so he begins to mourn and pray and fast. We see that he actually begins to turn away from luxury in order to seek explanation for this message that he had received. This actually shows that Daniel is portrayed as a man of deep spiritual intensity and devotion. It shows that he's spiritually sensitive and burdened for his nation of Israel because of, what, because of what he sees in this message. And he doesn't quite understand it, and so he fasts, he mourns, which was a popular response if you were to seek out explanation. So three weeks go by of him doing this. And we pick it up where Daniel is hanging out with a couple of guys by the bank of the Tigris River. And at some point, Daniel lifts his head up And he sees a man standing there. Now this is no ordinary man. This is a spectacular vision of a man dressed in fine linen. He has a belt of gold. It says that his body was like chrysolite. Chrysolite is a gem. It would be like our modern day topaz. Literally this man is glowing like a gemstone. He's glowing like a gem. His face is like lightning. His eyes are like flaming torches. And Daniel explains his voice, that booming voice. It's that kind of voice that when someone speaks, it like hits you. You can feel it. You're like, oh, that's scary. Like a James Earl Jones type voice, you know? Like just super booming and deep and of a multitude. And it's just powerful. This was the vision that that Daniel sees of this man. Now, it would be easy for a critic to look at this and say, Daniel, you haven't eaten in three weeks. Obviously, you're seeing things. You're hallucinating. I know if I don't eat after a day, I start to see things. And so the critic can easily look to Daniel and say, the the man's delirious. But he wasn't. And we know this because there were other people with him. And it explicitly states that they did not see this vision, but they felt this man's presence. They knew something was up. So much so that they were filled with terror and they ran and hid because of it. 
So although they didn't see it, they couldn't attest to it, they knew something was up. And so Daniel sees this man, and he grows pale, a little bit woozy, puts his head down, and it says that he falls into a deep sleep. Basically, Daniel passed out. He is so overwhelmed by the vision of this man that Daniel passes out. Now, depending on which scholar you read, uh, this man is one of two people. Um, He could be the pre-incarnate Christ. This could be a vision of Jesus. And we get this idea because this description closely matches Revelation 1. Not perfectly, but pretty, pretty close. And even through the book of Ezekiel, you see other descriptions that seem to match Um, So he's either the pre-incarnate Christ or he is the messenger angel that comes into the picture definitely in verse 10. If this is Jesus, somebody else is talking to Daniel starting in verse 10. Uh, But this could be Gabriel. It's safely assumed to be Gabriel uh, since Gabriel was the messenger angel uh, from from his earlier visions. Um, The reason I tell you this It's one of those two guys, and it's rather ambiguous, and I'm not confident or increasingly convinced of one over the other. Uh, But the reason I tell you this is because, once again, it's it's important to focus on the main things. It's important to focus on what this passage is teaching, what it really means. And frankly, whoever this man is, whoever Daniel saw, does not make a difference in our understanding of this chapter as a whole. It doesn't change what this chapter is teaching. So once again, let's focus on the main things. So in verse 10, an angel, safely assumed to be Gabriel, touches Daniel, gives him strength, lifts him up to his hands and knees, and he explains to Daniel that his words were heard, and he has come in response to them. That is very key, and we'll get to that later, but know that Daniel's words were heard, and he was sent to explain this message that he had received three weeks prior. But on the way to explain this message, Gabriel was intercepted or detained. He got into a little bit of a scuffle with somebody that kept him from getting to Daniel, and this person is identified as the prince of the Persian kingdom. Now you've got to ask yourself, Who is this guy? Who is this prince of the Persian kingdom? Who is this mysterious figure that prevented Gabriel from getting to Daniel? Um, We can pull out three things just on this small verse, these two couple of verses. The first one is uh, we believe him to be a spiritual being. He was a spiritual being for two reasons. First, I can't imagine a human uh, would resist a messenger from God. Second, the term prince is actually in this context used to identify a spirit or an angel. Um, Later on, Michael, that we know as the archangel, is identified as Israel's prince. And so once again, in this context, we can see that this prince of the Persian kingdom was some kind of spirit. That's the first thing. The second thing, he was an evil spirit. He wanted to prevent Gabriel from getting to Daniel. He got in a scuffle with a messenger from God. He opposed God. So we know him to be not just a spirit, but an evil spirit. And then finally, third, he was identified with a nation. There was some kind of influence that he had on the Persian government, which we'll get to later on as well. And so Gabriel is explaining this to Daniel. I got in a scuffle with this spirit. And then Michael, the chief prince, came to my aid 
and it allowed me to come to you. And as Gabriel's explaining all of this, Daniel's getting a little woozy again. He's thinking, oh boy, here, here I go again. You know, I have no strength. And once again, we find the angel giving Daniel the strength to speak. And Daniel appropriately responds by saying, I don't even feel strong enough to speak. I can barely breathe. Once again, so overwhelmed by the presence of, of Gabriel that he couldn't even speak. He could barely breathe. A third time, this messenger angel touches Daniel, gives him strength in his weakness. And finally, Daniel says, speak, speak. I'm ready. I'm ready because you have given me strength when I'm weak. Gabriel then states, I'm going to explain your vision, your message to you, but then I'm going to go back and I'm going to continue fighting the prince of Persia. The fight is not over. And in fact, after I'm done with the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece is going to rise up. Now, Greece wasn't even a a major world power at this point, at least not to the extent that Persia was. And so what this messenger angel, what Gabriel is basically saying, is once the conflict with Persia is over, there's going to be a conflict with Greece. And and we're still going to be fighting. We're still going to fight them. He goes on then to his explanation, which we'll hear um, in the coming weeks, of what this message was that Daniel received in regards to this great war and his people. It's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable story, and I think there's really three implications that we can pull out of the text here. The first one is this. The spiritual realm is real. The spiritual realm is real. In that culture, it was commonly accepted. But in our culture today, I think we need a little bit more convincing. Uh, This may be simple and obvious, uh, but there has been a rise of atheism among our world, people that don't believe in God, that don't believe in a spiritual world. And so I think with that in mind, this needs to be mentioned. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, wrote a clever little book called The Screwtape Letters. Um, And although it's fictional, the story takes the form of a series of letters written from a demon identified as Screwtape to his nephew, who's identified as a junior tempter named Wormwood. Okay. Now, Screwtape is writing to Wormwood, and the book basically goes on and explains about how the spiritual realm and how the schemes of the devil and the demons and his assistants can affect us. Uh, once again, although fictional, it gives us a good insight to how this can play out and what this looks like. But in one of his letters, Screwtape writes this to Wormwood in, uh, in these words, speaking of humans. He says this, Thanks to the processes which we set at work in them centuries ago, they find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar while the familiar is before their eyes. Keep pressing home on him the ordinariness of things. I think a lot of us has fallen captive to the familiar in front of our eyes the familiar before our eyes. And frankly, that's exactly where our enemy wants us. Because if we can disregard him, and we can be happy with what's familiar and what's comfortable, there's a back entrance that he can sneak into. Keep 
pressing home on him the ordinariness of things. One commentator puts it like this. He says, One of Satan's most effective schemes is the delusion that no seriously threatening conflict between good and evil is really raging in the supernatural realm. Let me read that again. One of Satan's most effective schemes is the delusion that no seriously threatening conflict between good and evil is really raging in the supernatural realm. He basically goes on to claim that this leads to lethargy, spiritual stagnation, and indifference. We become lazy Christians because we convince ourselves that there is really no conflict going on behind the curtain. But I think if you look at Scripture, and you look at Daniel 10, and you look at Gabriel's experience and Daniel's experience with Gabriel, you have to believe that the spiritual realm is real. You have to believe that spiritual warfare actually exists. That heaven and hell are a real place. That that Satan, our greatest foe, is a real and personal being. You have to believe that if you want to be consistent with Scripture. And not only is the spiritual realm real, but the spiritual realm can influence the affairs of the physical realm. We look at the evil spirit, once again, that's detained by Gabriel, or that detained Gabriel, and we see that he is the prince of the Persian kingdom. The Persian kingdom was the most powerful kingdom at the time. Not only that, but Michael was actually identified as Israel's prince, Israel's archangel. I won't get into whether um, there are territorial spirits. It can be a controversial topic. But from this small passage on the, uh, on the matter, we know that there was a spirit that had special interest invested in Persia. He cared about what Persia did. And he influenced them. World governments can be influenced by the spiritual realm. And I shudder at the fact that there are forces unseen, not just influencing people, but world politics. And I would say that these forces aren't just concerned with our little inconveniences, like I spilled my coffee on myself this morning, there was too much traffic, I was late to work. I don't think they're as concerned with that as the big picture. World power. The powers and the greatest influences of the world. Have you ever given this any thought? That the things that we see are affected by those unseen? There are spiritual powers, good and bad, behind human institutions. And I'm convinced that cosmic war stands behind human conflict. The spiritual realm can affect the affairs of the physical realm. But not only that, but our third implication from the passage is that the physical realm can influence the affairs of the spiritual realm. It's not a one-way street. Daniel received a message and he prayed. God heard his prayer and responded. We have a gateway into the spiritual realm. And I'm not talking about haunted houses or silly little games that some people might play. I'm talking about prayer. 
through prayer, we have access to God. And the remarkable thing is, is that God hears us. He heard Daniel. And he responded to Daniel. So as God, all-powerful and almighty, sits on his throne, he hears us. He hears us. And he responds to us. As a side note, I think we can take fact, uh, take comfort in the fact that Daniel didn't receive his answer or his explanation for three weeks. He had to wait three weeks for his prayers to be answered. Now, I'm not saying that every time we pray that the answer or the explanation gets intercepted by some evil spirit. But what I am saying is that when you pray, you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes, both physically and spiritually. You have no idea what's going on. And so what happens is a lot of times when things don't get answered the way we want them to, or they don't get answered in the time frame we want them to, we start believing in lies. And it goes something like this. We clench our fists at God. And you say, you can't hear me. You don't know me. You don't love me. He does hear you. He does care for you. He does love you. There are a myriad of reasons why our prayers seem to go unanswered or unexplained. In those moments, we need to remember that as Christians, we live on his promises, not his explanations. His promises, not his explanations. Several months ago, uh, I had some family visiting us, and my sister-in-law was getting my nephew ready for the day. Now, my nephew is five years old. He doesn't understand things um, quite as well as we would. And she's dressing him for a cold day. Uh, it was a colder day. They're from California, so they don't know what like 60 degrees feels like. Um, and so as he was getting dressed, he started asking all these questions. Why do I have to wear this? I'm not going to get sick. I don't need to wear this. And instead of explaining to my nephew all of the intricacies of weather and how it can have an effect on you to a five-year-old, my sister-in-law merely said to him, you have to do this because I have more information than you. This has to happen because I have more information. And that struck me because I thought, how many times have I called out to God and I haven't gotten the answer that I want and I clench my fists and I say, you can't hear me or you can't, you don't love me or you, you don't, you know, how many times have I done that? And God can simply respond because I have more information. Take comfort in the fact that God has more information and really If that's not a good enough answer for you, you might need to question how much do you really trust God? How much do you trust God with your life if he can't tell you that he has more information and you'd be okay with that? Incredible. Once again, in these moments, remember that we live on God's promises, not explanations. It may not feel like it, But when we pray, our words break through a cosmic barrier to God. And it's accomplished not by how we pray, not because we use big words or sound intelligent or because God loves us a little bit more. He doesn't listen to us and he can't listen to us because of something we've done, but because of what Christ has done, because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. 
His death and resurrection built a bridge to God that we initially destroyed. And he built it back, and it's because of Christ that we can approach the throne of God with confidence. Because we're no longer his enemy, but we are his child. We are his son. We are his daughter. Uh, John F. Kennedy, a young president, had young kids running throughout the White House. And there's a famous picture where his son is hanging out at the bottom underneath his desk. And it's such a sweet and a cute picture. And you got to think, like, if I were to walk up to the president, I couldn't even walk on the lawn before the Secret Service taking me out. But this child, this sweet, innocent child, is able to play under President Kennedy's desk. Because in that child's eyes, he's not the president of the United States. He's his father. And we can approach the throne of God in that same way. Yes, he is all-powerful. Yes, he is almighty. Yes, he's our creator. But he's also our father. And he wants us to come and approach him with confidence through prayer. Now, as Christians, these implications, I think, demand a response. What am I supposed to do in response to these things, you may be asking? How do I approach the idea that the spiritual realm is real and that it can have an effect on my life and vice versa? Well, the first thing, I think, is that we have to approach this with balance. We need to approach this with balance. We need to find the balance between overestimating the devil and underestimating the devil. In the prologue to Lewis's screw tape letters, which I read from before, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. What Lewis is saying is that we can actually err on two different sides. We can either not believe in spiritual warfare at all, we cannot believe in demons and Satan at all, or we can give them too much credit and focus too much on them and make our life all about that. Lewis makes the point There's a fine line. There is a balance to walk when we focus on spiritual warfare. Let's approach it with balance. Number two, another response. As a Christ follower, we can approach this with assurance. When Christ died on that cross and rose from the grave, our victory over the devil and all of his evil schemes was sealed. We won. Game over. That was it. If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and that you are saved by grace through faith, there is nothing the devil himself can do to pry you out of the hands of our loving Father. Your salvation is as secure as the ones that are standing in God's midst right now because we've won. We've won. If you were to look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, we're told, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who is in you, God, the Holy Spirit, is greater than the one who is in the world, the devil and evil spirits and all of his assistants. 
the victory in Christ is certain. We can approach that with assurance. The victory of Christ has been our victory. We share in that victory. We've won, but they aren't going to go down without a fight. They aren't going to go down without a fight. You history buffs will know that June 6th, 1944, is labeled as D-Day. On this day, Allied forces began to fight against uh, Nazi Germany in the Battle of Normandy during World War II. Germany, in this battle, they lost and they were dealt a crushing blow, a back-breaking blow. And it was all but certain that they were to lose the war after the Battle of Normandy. It wasn't until May 8, 1945, though, recognized as V-Day, Victory Day, that the Germans surrendered. And so, although the victory was imminent on D-Day, it didn't officially come until V-Day. One commentator says, as Christians, we spiritually live between D-Day and V-Day. Christ has won, the devil has lost, but they're going to go down uh, they aren't going to go down without a fight. And I think this is fully expressed in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is what he says in Ephesians 6. And our response to it, what does it say? Verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which, uh, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And Paul goes on and on and on and expresses this. And so I have a question for you. Are you fighting the right battle with the right weapons? Are you fighting the right battle with the right weapons? I believe um, that we're too caught up in the things that are familiar. We're too caught up in battles that aren't necessarily our number one enemy. Verse 12 in Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the evil schemes of the devil. And there's so much in that small passage that we read. We could do a whole series on that. But the point that Paul was trying to make is this. Fight the right battle with the right weapons. For example, one very practical example. I think that we get a little too caught up in politics. For the next year, we are going to be hearing all about who should be the next president of the United States. And we'll get in debates with friends. And we'll hop on Facebook and write out uh, Facebook debates. And we'll fight with people. Because we get this idea in our mindset that if, if my candidate wins, then America will be a good place. Then God can really work. Then it will be God's kingdom here on earth. We look at certain social issues and say, if we do this, then we have truly defeated our enemy. Now, don't get me wrong, I think it's good to support a candidate. I strongly believe that you need to practice your freedom uh, and vote. 
and support a candidate and lovingly take on certain issues that need to be addressed in our culture. But bottom line, there will never be a time that we can fully establish God's kingdom here on earth until Christ returns and does it himself. That is the only time where God's kingdom will be fully established when Christ returns to do it himself. And so if we want to fight for those causes and fight for those things, we must do it in the spiritual arena with the weapons that God himself has provided to us. Did you catch that? Paul is saying our, our fight, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Therefore, in light of that, in light of the fact that we're fighting the devil and his schemes and, and his, his little minions, in light of that, we need to fight with these kind of weapons, the ones that God has himself provided for you. When Christ died on that cross, guys, not only did he seal your victory, but he gave you weapons. He gave you weapons to help you endure. Truth, peace, righteousness, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer, the Holy Spirit. Paul's concern is that we would stand firm, that we would stand firm, not to be wobbly Christians. Yes, your salvation is secure, but the devil and his workers can certainly still wreak havoc on other facets of your life. They might not be able to touch your soul, but they can get you on a lot of other grounds. And so we need to be fighting the right battle with the right weapons. Think about Daniel's life. He was taken out of his homeland. They tried to indoctrinate him. They tried to educate him, all things uh, Babylon. They tried to change his entire culture. Yet at the age of 85... Daniel still stood strong. At the age of 85, Daniel stood firm. I'm sure that when Paul wrote this, it's hard not to think about Daniel standing firm. And how did he do this? Because he knew that his strength came from the Lord. He knew his strength came from God. Spiritual warfare is very real. And I do believe there's a cosmic war going on behind the scenes. We approach it with balance, yet we approach it with assurance that we've won. And we stand firm and we fight because our victory has come from Christ and Christ alone.